0: Ramachaloka dipati sahapati, Katanjali and Adivara Mayachata, Santida Sata Parajaka Jatika, they say Mang so my congratulations to the Bangladeshi community for creating such a beautiful opportunity for, uh, many thanks for walking us to the Katina. The Katina only happens if someone makes an invitation. Um, we have room for bookings for next year. <laughs> 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 anyway, if you hadn't done it, we wouldn't have it. So, this is very lovely. Um, I've never been to, to Bangladesh, but I've been to Burma. Um, but we are, we're a related family, some from Burma, some from Thailand, some from Sri Lanka, some from Malaysia, some from Singapore, some from Laos, uh, some from Cambodia, and some from Tay Valley, and Ottawa, and Toronto, and British Columbia, and so on and so forth. And this this family that we, uh, the company of our family is, is very much facilitated. By rituals that we have inherited from countries like Bangladesh and Sri Lanka and Thailand. So my own early beginnings in monasticism, of course, was in Thailand, and uh, I had no idea of culture. I had ideas about the Buddhist teachings, but I had no real sense of what Buddhist culture was. And then ordaining with Ajahn and being in a um, in a in an atmosphere where where uh, the Buddha Dhamma is foremost. where The teachings of the Buddha are, are highly regarded. Where the Sangha is much revered and much respected and much heard, where the Dhamma is much practiced. This was new to me because as a, as a Western, I had only kind of come across books or uh, occasional monks that I met. But to be in a whole culture, a whole culture uh, where where the Buddha's teachings are, are held so high was so was was a kind of a, a total immersion experience, which I didn't understand because I really didn't understand what was going on half the time because I didn't speak the language or so on, but I could, I could take it in, in, a, in a very human level, how, how people rejoiced at, uh, at the rituals and ceremonies that they were performed, how they used iconography, Buddha images of stupas, um, to remember the enlightenment of the Buddha how uh, they used ceremonies like besa or katina uh, or maka puja or whatever to come together as community committed to the Buddhist teachings. And so I, I I swam in that environment for four or five years, and it had a huge effect on me. It. it had a huge effect on me. So when I, when I came to England with Ajahn Samedo in 1977, uh, all of us had taken in Buddhism not just as a, uh, meditative principles or philosophical principles or even psychological principles, we took it in as a lifestyle. And a lifestyle which wasn't simply monks doing monk thing. It was a whole uh, integrated community of both monastic and lay people practicing together and doing their respective duties and responsibilities. And so what we... um, what we found in, in England was that there was some interest in that. We weren't sure. We thought, well, maybe people just want to do kind of meditation, possibly meditation, and that would be enough. And some people, yes. They, but as we tried to develop these monasteries abroad, we saw that culture needs various formats. You can't, if you can not have a, a whole Buddhist lifestyle, it can't just be a meditation retreat. Because you can only do a meditation 10-day retreat once a year What about the rest of the time. And so coming together like this, uh, through the invitation of the Bangladeshi community, we create an opportunity to be together in this simple way, in this very generous way. And, and, and that, of course, helps in the, in the drudgery of life. Much of life is, is hard. And there's lots of competition and there's stress and, and so much difficulties go on to come together and, and bring, bring, bring these values of the, of the Lord Buddha's teachings into our lives in a very conscious way is, I think, tremendously important. Because we all, although we come from different, different nationalities, we have a common love of the Buddha's teaching. And a love of the Buddha's teaching and, and his message is also in the love of panya a love of dhyana, a love of a love of generosity, a love of morality, a love of contemplation, and a love of wisdom. Because this is really what defines uh, the Buddhist teachings. It's not simply a cultural um, format that we worship and praise, but rather it's a lived uh, practice. And so, in that sense, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a very a responsible kind of teaching, isn't it? You can't just do Buddhism once a year; you have to do it all the time. And so we we always, as you know, we always begin these ceremonies by reflecting on the precepts. Uh, but first, you have the precepts; you have dana. So we couldn't have come together if it weren't for generosity. If it wasn't for your generosity for offering this occasion, we couldn't come together. If it wasn't for the generosity of the Lokenko and the sangha and the lay people and the raso and and all the people who brought food today, and the people on the board, and Kamini on the committee, and Harani as a doctor, and so on and so forth. We couldn't do this. So the the real um, kind of cloth that this teaching is embedded on is is generosity and morality. This is the, the way we actually do Buddhism, right? Uh, and generosity is, is, uh, is, is obviously such an important thing. To, to be able to express generosity, to be able to do good things and meritorious things, brings so much joy to the heart, doesn't it? And, and the life without generosity is, 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 is very sterile, very difficult. And then also morality, that, that we as a, as, a, as a Buddhist community, we undertake to protect each other. We undertake to to care for each other, so we undertake not to hurt each other or other beings. We undertake not to take things which are not ours. We uh, undertake faithfulness and fidelity in our relationships. We undertake a precept to speak in ways which bring harmony, which are truthful. And we undertake a precept not to drink, to to smoke too much marijuana, even though it's legal accounting, <laughs> which is another issue. <laughs> but we undertake sobriety, right? And, and these are, 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 are like a foundation of, of a good life, morality and generosity. And they're not particularly Buddhist. And you don't have to be a Buddhist to do that. So it's not dogmatic or doctrinal. It's just good sense. It's wise. And you'll know, notice in all Buddhist sermons, we always repeat that. We always remember God, see us not I was saying this morning after the breakfast meeting <clears throat> how life is problematic. And I was suggesting, how can you deal with a problematic life but not make it a problem? Because life law, you know, we have the snow and where we're going to park, that's a problem. But don't make it a problem. Deal with it. And there's a difference between worry and anxiety, and anger, and all the rest of it in the problems that we face and just doing it mindfully. And that's the challenge of Buddhist contemplation is, how can I use the problems of life to become a wiser being? How can I use the problems of life to become more economist? How can I use the problems of life to become more generous, to become more compassionate, to become more attentive to the way things are? And this is a huge challenge. And this is a huge challenge. But without this sense of responsibility for our inner world, then the external world of dying and Sila is not fully realized because the internal world is really where we find peace. We're all interested in peace. People come to the mind and say, Oh, it's so peaceful. Uh, we all we all we all love silence. We love stillness. Uh, we feel refreshed by it we feel energized by, it's common. It's a common human need, I would say. Uh, So how do we move towards the inner peace that's possible, and that the Buddha suggested that we could do? Um, So you know we have this word trending on the internet, right? Something is trending. Well, I hope we're all trending to peace, (laughs) rather than trending to some whatever. And well, how do you trend towards peace? How do you move your mind towards peace? Well, the first and foremost thing is to recognize what's going on now. Like, how am I? How am I right now? How does this moment feel? Uh, without making a judgment, without thinking you should feel anything, but how does it feel to be upset? How does it feel to be disappointed? How does it feel to be, uh, have self-doubt? How does it feel to be uh, betrayed? How does it feel? These different things we face as human beings, we can be aware of them. Right? And to be aware of something you have to awaken to it, you have to recognise, you have to know it. And this is of course the word Buddha, Buddha, awakened. And awakened doesn't mean enlightened in some kind of mystical cloud nine sense. It's very ordinary. Like if you know what's going on right now, and you like let's say if you if you feel hot right now. And you feel oh hot is this way. You are awakened to temperature. If you're feeling hot right now, like I am, and thinking, oh I was there. why don't put so many sweaters on, and why don't put the air conditioning on? I'm hot, but I'm not aware that I'm hot. I've become hot, I've attached to hotness, and I suffer. Simple, isn't it? Simple. Uh, let's say um, you have you had, <laughs> you had a little fender bender in, in Perth. Um, so, you have a fender bender, and the feeling is, ah, rats, a fender bender. But you can be aware of that. You can be, whole. having a fender bender feels this way. And it's not a nice feeling, not a great feeling, but if you're patient with it, that feeling won't dominate your mind. It will just be a memory. If you're not mindful, if you're not patient, then of course you get angry, uh, husband and wife blame each other, why don't you drive there? Or we need a new car, why don't you put on the right tires? We're going to Florida, I've had enough. And that's attachment around the fender bender. The fender benders are going to happen, I'm sorry. You know, this is the the realm of dukkha. So fender benders happen, disappointments happen, uh, we get sick, we're successful, we're unsuccessful. So to wish for a life, I mean, I wish everyone freedom from fender benders, <laughs> certainly. But don't count on it. <laughs> what you can count on is that life will sometimes be disappointing, and that's nature. There's nothing wrong with disappointment. You know, just just you know, the idea that you can always get everything you want all the time is not wisdom. It's stupid, isn't it? And yet, and yet, when we don't get what we want, we suffer. And when we get what we don't want, we suffer. So the Buddha's suggestion is to do the best you can. Um, get winter tires on quickly, (laughs) or get a four-wheel drive, whatever, whatever you want to do, but always, always take responsibility for your inner world. Awaken to that and see, where's the real problem? And so the Buddha was pointing to this feeling of wanting, having something I don't want, and wanting something I don't have, right? This is very basic to human culture. And certainly we can do things to make our lives more comfortable, make our lives more beautiful, and so on and forth, and so forth. But oftentimes we can't because life is that way. So when you have something you don't want and you can't change it, what do you do? Well, you can think about it and feel resentful and blame. That's dukkha, that's attachment. Or you can awaken and say, oh, this is a feeling of getting something that I don't want. Now, if you hold that feeling, if you hold that awareness, then that mood cannot dominate, cannot take over your mind, because you are now taking refuge in Buddha, in awareness. However, if you take refuge in thought, or you take refuge in anger, or you take refuge in disappointment, or you take refuge in blaming, you're born in hell. <laughs> right? You fall into hell, something that you can experience now. And yet, even when you've fallen into it, you can say, wow, look at that, I'm really lost. This is what it feels like to feel lost. And then you're awake again. You're aware. So it's beautiful. It's a beautiful teaching because it's always applicable. Getting something you don't want, not being able to get something you do want. Wanting is okay. It's legal. (laughs) Right? Go for it. But how often are you able to get what you want? 10% of the time? 100%? Not 100%, right? So there are times when you cannot get what you want. Is that right or wrong? It's natural. Is very natural? And when you can't get what you want, rather than being lost in that through attachment, through resentment, through self-doubt, through self-disparagement, you awaken to feeling, oh, this is a feeling of wanting, unfulfilled wanting. Now, when you can bear with unfulfilled wanting, when you can witness and be awake to unfulfilled wanting, the nature of wanting is that it will change. And if you watch, the changing nature of wanting, as it ceases, you realize niroda. And this is synonymous with nibbana or enlightenment. Enlightenment is the end of wanting. It's the cessation of wanting, nirodha. So when you want something, fine. If it's legal, go for it. Uh, if it's not legal, don't do it. But also observe wanting. Don't just chase wanting. And and wanting is a powerful energy in the human mind, it's a powerful condition. It makes us do things, it makes us shovel of snow, so there's nothing wrong with it. But a mind which has only external refuges, if I think that my, my life will only be fulfilled through externalities, then I'm very dependent on the external world. But if I realize that the external world is very limited, I only have a little bit of control, but my inner world, my inner world is a place where I can find peace, I begin to invest more in the inner world, rather than in the outer world, and by still being responsible, still being with the outer world. So, in the inner world, what we're doing is we're contemplating the nature of change, anicca. So you feel happy, and then you feel sad. Now, happiness depends on sadness. If you didn't have sadness, you wouldn't have happiness. You wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know what it is. Disappointment comes and goes, success comes and goes. These are movements in the mind. And the question that my teacher would often sort of put to me, okay, success and failure move, fender benders, not fender benders, snow comes and goes, spring comes and goes, weather comes and goes, what doesn't come and go? Is there anything that does not come and go? Is it all changing? Or is one one? I did a trick on that community in we we did a retreat at Arm Thriar asked this question is everything changing is that Buddhism everyone put up their hand and said ah what's unchanging is there anything unchanging well isn't the sense of presence right now is that changing like you I can hear the toilet flushing sorry <laughs> and I can feel the heat in my body and I can see light and I can see the dark, dark road. road. So that's all changing, right? But what is it that knows that? Is that knowing changing? You try, it. you know, like listen. Now notice the changing nature of sound. You have to do this with me. Listen. That's changing. Is the knowing changing? Okay, then, then then feel the warmth of your body. What does that feel like? Now to do that you have to stop thinking. If you're just like thinking about tomorrow or yesterday, then you're not really aware. You're you're lost in your thoughts. But so to awaken you have to stop thinking, you have to waken up. So I say to you, how hot is your body? And to do that, what do you have to do? You have to stop and you have to be present. And that awake is what we mean by Buddha. And it's in that where you find your freedom. Not in the heat or the cold. In the heat and the cold, you'll find heat and cold. They change. But the more you come to this awakened state, you realize there's silence. There's always silence there. It's never far away. So in the midst of the noise, there's silence. In the midst of flowing water, there's stillness. It's always there. But we don't notice it because we're so busy with our wanting and our thoughts and our judgments and our uh, self-doubts and our histories and so on and so forth. We're not present. So the Buddha is suggesting, awaken to the way things are. Don't worry about them so much, but awaken to them first. What's it like to be here now at this moment feeling this way? So any, any situation is the potential for awakening. It just have to something you have to remember, and then you have to sustain. All right, so, um, you'll, you'll all return to your homes, We will return to the monastery, um, and we'll all have different situations. You'll be driving a car, I'll be driven in a car. You'll have a television, I won't have a television. Uh, you'll have dinner, I won't have dinner. But that doesn't really matter so much, does it? But will we both be awake? So when you're having dinner, to awaken to eating. That sounds simple enough, but when you're eating, how often are you thinking about what you're going to do after dinner? Usually, you know, you, 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 you just try food, right? You two, what, three mouthfuls? You say, oh, that's wonderful wonderful," and you're thinking. You don't last for four mouthfuls. Because we're always thinking, we're not present. So what we try to do in Buddhist contemplation is be with the ordinary be with the eating, be with the walking, uh, be with whatever you're with. And that sense of awakening becomes very, very interesting because it's it's very hard to do. It's really hard to awaken to the way things are. To, it's easier to worry. It's easier to feel betrayed. It's easier to think fantasies. It's very hard to stay in the present moment. And so, you know, my training with Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Samedo has been very simple. How are you now? How is it now? But before you think about it, like, oh, well, you can say, oh, I'm hot, I'm cold, I'm having a rough time. Before you say anything about it, before there's any perception or conception or construct or storyline or narrative around the present moment, how is the present moment? How is it now? To do it, you have to stop. And that's what the Buddha's teaching is about. Is it's stopping. Stop, listen, be. Huh? And in that stopping, it takes training, in that stopping, you begin to sense what the Buddha was talking about when he talked about the potential for peace, that we have a potential for peace, and we have a possibility for compassion if we just be very patient. Now, this is hard to do when we are very distracted. So you'll find, like, let's say, if you spend a lot of time uh, on, on a computer, right? and you, you absorb a lot into your work, or into Facebook, or into uh, news sites, or all the rest of it, your mind, what your mind is doing, it's always going outside into objects. Visual objects, audio objects, information objects, right? So your mind is going outside and becoming fascinated by things outside. Now, when you want to experience inner peace, you have to stop going outside and remain as the knower. And if your attention is always going outside, when you try to do that, you feel very impatient. can't do it, because you want an object. You want a distraction, you want to do something, so you do something. You eat something, you look at your emails. We all do this, don't we? So stopping is difficult, because it requires a change of attitude and a change of direction. Rather than going out, you have to come back home. And then when you start to sense this sense of being home is like this, you'll see the objective world pulling your mind. you see, you want to look at the internet, you want to eat something, you want to talk with someone, or you just go thinking. Right? So to chain the mind is, is a, it's a big task, it's a big task. But it's, it's, you know, you live in your mind, don't you? You don't live in Ottawa. You don't really live in Ottawa. All of us are having a different experience now, correct? And where is that experience taking place? It's taking place in our mind. So some are falling asleep. Some uh, are are interested. Some are not interested. Where is Ottawa? Where is the world? It's in your mind, isn't it? So if that's where you live, you live in your mind, it it kind of makes sense to figure it out, to get it right as much as you can. So if you live in your mind, you awaken to the world as it manifests in your own mind. As love and hate, as right and wrong, as good and bad, as disappointment, or whatever. And you begin to see that that movement is known. And the awareness of that movement is unmoving. And that's what we're trying to come in contact unmoving peace of the mind. If my mind has been very distracted, when I try to do that, it's very hard. Because I'm always wanting to do something, to be with some object. So people find meditation hard. When they try to meditate, they, they look at the clock every five minutes, or they fall asleep. <laughs> That's how I began. When I started meditation, my knees are up here, and I either fell asleep or just drove me crazy. So five minutes was torture. But my teacher said, well, what did you expect? You've never meditated, and you want to sit for four hours? You're not the Buddha. <laughs> He says, you haven't trained your mind. You have to train your mind. So, okay. So then I sit, and then I get six minutes. Six minutes of knowing the way things are. And then seven minutes. And then eight. So you build up on the sense of knowing, being aware. And this is what meditation is about. It's not some kind of esoteric experience that you're trying to get to bala land, right? <laughs> That's what you read about But it's such a very ordinary way of training in being present to the way things are. That's what we're doing in meditation. Present to the way things are, moment upon moment upon moment. Now, if you build on that, if you do 10 minutes of meditation in the morning, then you've you've trained your mind to be aware for 10 minutes. Then you'll find that that awareness is more powerful throughout the day. You'll be more aware. That's the way it works, it's like a muscle. And if you develop that for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, then the payoff is not just in the sitting, but it's throughout the day. Your mindfulness becomes stronger, your awareness becomes stronger, and as your awareness becomes stronger, you begin to see where you get caught up, where you make dramas, where you suffer, and how to put an end to suffering. And so it's a a very nourishing kind of thing to do. Now, sometimes people think that, well, you know, meditation is for monks, we're sort of the professional meditators, but um, not a good idea. Because it's such a good thing to do. And it's such a beautiful thing to turn in your mind. And it's not just for you, it's for everyone else. It's for your family, for society. We live in a very, um, well, there's a lot of of news. I don't know how much of it is true. But there's a lot of news and a lot of uh, hatred and a lot of dissension and a lot of um, disagreements. And people love to fight. They love to have views and opinions. And one of the real poisons of human culture, and human communication, is self-righteousness. I'm right and you're wrong. And only my right is right and your right is wrong. And that's horrible, human humans do it. And that's called self-righteousness. I'm right or wrong. But we can be aware of self-righteousness. We can see that self-righteousness is a kind of arrogance and a kind of anger. We can awaken to it and we can develop right communication. We can disagree, right? Uh, We can have different political views or whatever, but we can come from compassion. We can come from sensitivity. We can come from awareness. And if you're aware of something like self-righteousness or arrogance and so on, you you find that it's not a good way to develop yourself. It's not a happy state of mind. And the tendency towards arrogance, self-righteousness, and division falls away through awareness awareness because it's it's not acceptable in your own heart. It, you suffer too much, you suffer too much. We have a potential as human beings to be very beautiful, very good, very compassionate, very generous beings. But we also have the potential to go the other way. To go down down the avenues of, of hatred and, and delusion and so on. And the Buddha's request to us was was universal compassion. You know, it's always universal. It's not just for our family or our culture is for everyone, for all beings, everyone. So it's a very high teaching. It's a very, very high teaching. But that's what makes you happy. That generosity, that compassion, that uh, letting go of attachment to views and opinions, that's what really makes you happy in your own mind. In your own mind. And that's where you live. So this this occasion, this, this katina, is, is, a, uh, is a wonderful time to uh, Express our, our gratitude to everyone who's been off, uh, who's been involved in this. So, my uh, gratitude to the community and to all our supporters who made this possible, to the Sangha here, and the chemical and others who made this possible. And so, if you, you know, may I suggest that you, when you when you leave here, um, make conscious the goodness that you're involved in, because it can be a pretty depressing world if you look at the news cycles, but there is goodness. We are good, and we're here in, 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 in a celebration of goodness. So do remember that. Remember this day. Remember the goodness of sharing the meal, the goodness of generosity. And don't let the negative views just overwhelm you in life to, to allow to see, yeah, there is goodness, and there's the aspiration for goodness. And so this ceremony is very much a, a part of that. So I wish you well in your, in your life, in your practice. May you have good health, prosperity, uh, good weather, good times, uh, good driving. <laughs> but also may you realize uh, Nibbana. Nibbana <laughs>